friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queen's Park podcast. Redeemer exists to connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We meet Saturdays at four o'clock at Salisbury Primary School in Queen's Park. If you have any questions, just give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com or check us out online at redeemerqp.com. Now, let's listen to another one of our Bible talks. Let me pray for myself and uh, for all of us um, real quick. Father, Lord, would you, would you come down and be with us now? Not because um, I had a short time to prepare or uh, because my mind is elsewhere, uh, but God, because we need you to speak to us. God, no matter what, I have a thousand things running through my mind that's pulling me away, and so is everyone else here. But God, we need to listen to what you have to say in these words in this moment, God. So would you speak to us um, this afternoon? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Peter, the book of 1 Peter, and we're just going to go through it kind of verse by verse and take a look and explore it together. and then we're going to go. So we're starting a new series on Peter, and it's going to be like 10 weeks long. And so this is just the beginning. This is an intro, but it's really super dense and super really helpful. Uh, super really helpful. It's very helpful for us to understand. So let's start uh, with the beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? So we know Peter. Peter was with Jesus. Peter um, was one of the earliest disciples called by Jesus, uh, literally called out of a fishing boat, on to, uh, to follow Jesus around. And one of the good things about Peter uh, that I like and that many people like is that he seems really relatable, right? He's impetuous. He's prideful. He speaks first and thinks later, right? Like there's a lot of things that we can relate to in Peter. Um, He's got a quick temper. Uh, he, he questions things. He doesn't understand everything. It, it, and he, he's a guy that, that we can get behind. And funny, it's, it, he's kind of the opposite to Paul in a lot of ways. Paul uh, comes in, he's got the education, he's got the, the, the background, the pedigree, and, and Peter doesn't have any of those things. And so they're kind of juxtaposed. I can't speak. Juxtaposed uh, a little bit when you see these guys. But Peter... He says, introduces himself, he says, Peter, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? There's a humility in these words. He's not saying, I'm Peter, uh, you know, I've got it all figured out. He's saying, I'm just one who's seen and been around Jesus. So then he addresses it to who he's speaking to. He says, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces who have been chosen according to the knowledge of the Father through sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So the first two things, elect exiles, right? This is an important name, important qualifier, descriptor. It tells us who we are. Uh, And he says, elect, it means God's chosen people. And exiles, meaning not in their home territory. Some, Some translations say alien. Some translations say stranger. The point is they're not where they're supposed to be. They're not in the same, they don't look right. Uh, both of these names, interestingly, have been given to the nation of Israel over time. Uh, at one point, um, or at one point or another, right, 
the Jews were God's chosen people uh, throughout the Old Testament. And for a while, uh, actually multiple times, they had been driven out of their land and were living somewhere else as exiles. Uh, and so Peter now gives that name to the church after Jesus. And he says, God's chosen people, and they're living in a land under the domination of an enemy or a foreign power, right? These are scattered because of persecution or something else. Uh, and yet today, as we look at this, he writes this to us, and we are scattered amongst the world uh, as exiles among us. So in other words, if you're a Christian, right, if you follow Christ, if you, if you uh, seek to follow the way of Jesus, you don't really belong here. We are citizens of another realm, another place. Uh, some translations say alien. That maybe feels a little more like it, right? We're aliens in a place that doesn't quite fit us. Uh, we're odd. We don't fit. And that's because we have been turned into something different, right? If, if you went uh, to Highbury and turned up at an Arsenal match wearing full Tottenham kit, you would look out of place, right? I mean, if they were playing Tottenham, it'd be one thing, but let's just say they're not. But if you turned up, you would, look, you would stand out from the crowd, would you not? Right? Uh, you stand for something different than the rest of the crowd around you. And so there, there's this alien nature, right? And that's kind of what we're getting at. Uh, when you're tuned into God, you're supposed to look different. In fact, if you're not different, it may be because your life might look more in rhythm with the world than with God, right? And, and so I want to note this, that the Bible talks about Christians being odd or alien or foreign. It's not necessarily talking about how, you know, when we look at uh, cringeworthy videos of Christians doing all sorts of things, like it's not that we're supposed to be weird, right? Uh, we don't have to be odd and listen to special music and dress in a certain way. It's uh, what it's actually talking about is what separates the people of God from the world. What makes them stand out from the people of the world is what these verses say. And it's primarily or mainly how Christians find hope in pain and disappointment and suffering and trials. So it continues on. Scattered throughout the provinces, uh, we said this, because of persecution, these Christians were spread across multiple continents. Uh, and so Peter is speaking to them as literal aliens in different places, but he's speaking to us uh, in the same way. And he says, who have been chosen, and it says, by God the Father. Um, and this, we get this, this notion of, of the triune nature of God here. It says, chosen by the Father, the Father initiates the plan of salvation. And then it's saved by Jesus. Jesus accomplishes the salvation. And then sanctified by the Spirit. The Spirit helps us apply that salvation while we live here on earth. Um, to what end? Why? It says, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. We're elected for a purpose. We're stood out uh, to be obedient to Christ. Isn't Christianity about relationship and not rules, you ask? I did. Um, no, obedience is the fruit of our salvation. Uh, it's what happens when we know we are loved, and then we love in return. 1 John 2, 3 says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Right? It's not different. Um, going back into the Old Testament, we think of the nation of Israel again as it's being formed. God saves his people, 
right? He, the Passover, the angel passes over, saving his people, and then they part the Red Sea to save them from chasing Pharaoh. And only then does he give them the law, right? God saves first, and then obedience comes second. Uh, we're saved for obedience. We don't, we don't obey to be saved. We're saved for obedience through grace and through his blood. So let's keep going. Verse 3. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This idea, in his great mercy, mercy, a lot of times the assumption that we have, or maybe I should say the assumption that I have in pain is that why are all these bad things happening to us good people, right? Why, why is that? The Bible actually takes the opposite approach, uh, and it says, you know, the whole world is under a curse, right? When, when sin entered the world, it cursed all of it. Peter reminds us that God's goodness is his mercy, right? Once the world was condemned by sin in the garden, the mere fact that anything good happens is God's mercy on the earth and to us. So in God's mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. What is hope? Hope is what we look for on the other side of pain. It, it, it's what tells us that everything's going to be okay or uh, that it will be worth it in the end, right? This is, this is hope. You're, you're looking towards something. Um, in, in some of the, the reading I was doing before um, getting ready to speak today, uh, I came across this story of a man named Viktor Frankl. He um, was an Austrian Jew uh, and was a prisoner at the infamous Auschwitz concentration camp. Uh, he was a trained psychoanalyst, psychologist, uh, and so as he was there, he would note kind of in his mind or whatever paper that he may have had uh, how different people were responding to the brutality and the suffering that would, would, would have happened, obviously, at the camp, and he ended up writing a book, uh, and he titled it Man's Search for Meaning. And so as he looked at the people who were there with him at the camp, he, he would see um, that some would just, at some point, would give up. They would, they would stop, and, and they, they, could, they would just wait for it to happen. At some point, um, one day they would wake up, and someone would have lost hope, and they wouldn't respond to any pressure or threats or anything. They just lay there and do nothing. They, they had lost hope. Others would, would hold on to the hope that if they could just stay alive, that their life from before would be returned, right? That after being liberated, they would realize the things of their previous life and that they had hoped, um, I'm sorry, once they were liberated though, they would get out and they'd realize that those things were irretrievable. They were gone. There was no way to get those back. And so it would send them into deep despair, even to the point of suicide. And so Frankel notes that the only ones who are truly able to overcome the horrific experience of being in this concentration camp were those who had some fixed reference point beyond the world around them, beyond the circumstances, something to hold on to that was out of the grasp of death and destruction. And this is true. When, when faced with the inevitable trials and suffering of a fallen world, we humans, we generally fall into one of these categories. 
we either lose hope, we hope in the wrong things, the gifts, not the giver, or we hope in something that's truly steady, truly fixed, something that never changes. And here it is in verse 4. This living hope and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This, this is what the living hope is, right? It's this uh, hope in something that lives, that cannot perish, that cannot spoil, that cannot fade. Unlike the things of the world that we tend to place our hope in, um, health, our family, professional achievements, some, some form of fortune or position or status in society, these things, they will inevitably fail you, right? If you live long enough, uh, and that's generally the goal for each of us, right, that each one of these will be taken from you, right? You see that? Like, no matter what we do, no matter how uh, you able to stay alive and do things, these are all taken away bit by bit, right? The concentration camp was just taking them all away in one moment. Life takes them all away, some slowly, others suddenly and violently. The thing is, trials and pain, they expose where our hope actually rests. For many of us, most of the time, uh, our hope is simply that our circumstances might change. You say, you know, one day I'll get the recognition I deserve. One day I'll have a good job. One day I'll have a job that pays me what I need. One day people will like me. One day I'll get married. One day I'll have kids. One day I'll be healed and I'll be saved from this physical or emotional battle. Right? That's what we hope. And yet, what happens when we don't actually get what we're hoping for? How about this one? What happens if we do get those things. So how do we have this living hope? Right back in verse 3, it says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is our fixed reference point. Something glorious, something wonderful, beyond the scope of the world. Uh, an inheritance and a hope that death and disease can't touch. Something that's so glorious, it makes all the pain of the world worth it. Because the, the, the truth is, on that worst day, at the cross, where it looked like God was the least in control, God was most in control. The greatest day in human history was the day of the crucifixion, but to them in the moment, it looked like the worst day. And it wasn't just that God won in the end, it was that God used what looked like apparent defeats as part of his plan. So here's a question for all of us to consider. What if you saw your life through the lens of the cross and the resurrection? What if you looked at it and you, and you knew that there was a glorious Sunday morning coming when all of those sad things would come untrue? An inheritance that death and disease can't touch, and then you can see how, the most, how even the most painful parts of your life are working towards that end, right? This is the living hope. It's that not that it's just something to look forward to, but it's something to look forward to that you can interpret the other things that you're, that you're living through. So we'll continue on. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, 
if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Here we have two strong verbs, intense verbs. We have rejoice and we have grieve. Rejoice is this intense joy. Um, Peter later says exceeding joy. It can't be expressed. It's, it's, it's too much. Have you ever been so happy, like you've seen a child, like they get a, a present and they're just so happy they can't even like make words? Um, similar to the way when I talk, I get up here, I can't make words well. But right, there's this exceeding joy that's so good. And at the same time, you've got this word grieved. And in the Greek, I, I don't know Greek, but I looked it up. It says uh, lupeo, uh, which I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce it in Greek. No idea. But uh, it's the same word that they use to describe Jesus as he was on the cross. Crushed. Defeated. Completely um, grieved. And they're both used together, right? Because walking with Jesus is often simultaneously great joy and deep pain. <laughs> it, you, you may look at me and you say, I don't know how that's possible. Sometimes I look at it and I'm sitting here like trying to, to come through it. Some can't have joy in the midst of bad circumstances. Why? Because their joy is in the circumstances. Some Christians seem to deal with pain by never actually feeling it. They look past it. They ignore it. They deny it. Um, maybe they say something, uh, a quippy verse or, or something like that, but they're not really dealing with it. The reality is when Jesus was on the cross, he didn't say, well, praise the Lord. He wept. He cried out to God, and he asked for another way. Right? He went to it, but he, he wept. He, he struggles because the reality is Christians hurt. We hurt, right? It's okay to feel grieved. It's okay to feel sadness. It's okay to feel pain. But the reality is for the Christian, hurt can only go so deep because our ultimate hope is in a God who brings life back from the dead, who turns tragedy into triumph and takes us through the cross to bring us to the resurrection. So we can simultaneously be filled with intense joy and deep pain, as, as Peter describes, because of Jesus. So verse 7, so that through the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that even perishes, though it's tested by fire. Here you see part of God's purpose. God allows trials to purify our faith. Peter says it's like gold tested by fire. Trials can serve to reveal the places where we don't trust God. As soon as things start going wrong, you might start thinking, God, you've forgotten me. Where are you, God? Right? We've been there. And it's dangerous because if you believe that God has forgotten you, you no longer trust him to be in charge. And then what are you left with? Uh, you have to take things into your own hands. And in my experience, when I try to be in charge, things rarely end well. Trials reveal not only uh, the places where we don't trust, but they reveal where we love God's gifts more than we love God himself. If you've heard uh, of this phrase of the uh, prosperity gospel, a prosperity church, right? Uh, you can imagine someone going through that, having heard that, having believed that, um, this idea that, that 
God will give us things if we just trust him enough, or uh, if we have faith, maybe if we give enough, that God will reward us uh, on this earth. Um, and, and the problem with that is that um, things go wrong, and he, like, you know, what do you do? Uh, it turns God into a means to an end. People get excited about God, but only in the way that you'd be excited about having a lottery ticket that had the numbers on it, right? That you would protect the ticket, you would hold the ticket, but you don't care about the ticket. You just want something at the end. The prosperity gospel creates idolaters who use God as a means to his gifts rather than lovers of God who would give up his gifts simply to possess him. So we continue with verse 7. And this may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So this is, this is a gift. The, the praise, the glory, and the honor is coming from Jesus toward us. Right? Peter looks forward to it. Peter, this Peter, had once sought approval of man. Right? There's this story in the Gospels of Peter walking along the road, chatting with the other guys, and trying to decide who is the best. Right? They are competing. Jesus is walking in front of them, and they're back here trying to decide which one of them is going to be the best. And now Peter is in a place where he says, your approval is all that matters. It's okay to be despised by everyone because I'm looking to your approval now. So we keep going. Verse 8. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This inexpressible and glorious joy, it, it comes from God. It doesn't come from his blessings. It's God himself. The end result of your faith is not stuff. The end result of your faith is not wealth or health. It's not success. It's not status. It's him forever into eternity. So here's another question. Can you believe in a God that is doing that right now in your life? That pain and disappointment that you might be going through, that he is purifying you for himself and preparing you for an inheritance that's beyond your comprehension. Do you sense the glory of that God and feel the weight of his love so much that it fills you even in the midst of the deepest and darkest pain with an inexpressible joy because that is so valuable to you? It doesn't diminish the pain. The pain is real. When things happen, when they're hard, like those are real things. And yet, because we know Jesus, because this inheritance waits for us, we can look forward to that and still have joy. We can still hold these things in tension. So we keep going here. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel, have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. The gospel here. The gospel can be so mysterious. Here's God, who, as we've just seen, apparently loves me so much that not even death could stand in his way, that he would take the penalty of my sin, 
onto himself so he could rescue me and I could live with him forever. And yet I can have these questions about faith. I can say, I can ask God, I can question God, why do people suffer? Maybe why am I having to suffer right now? Maybe it's bigger. Maybe why, it, why, why do people, why do so many people not know you? How, how come there's people that can't get your word? How come they can't see that? Maybe my question is, why does there have to be separation? Why does there have to be hell? But when I look at the cross, I have to stop asking those questions because I know that the cross is actually what we deserve, right? The, the world is under curse because of sin. I am under curse because of my own sin. All of us have rebelled against God, and we see the tenderness of God there to take that for us and to, to, to let us ask those questions, to let us wrestle with that and still in, in love stand and, and, and be there for us. So what if we based our understanding on God's love, our, our understanding of God's love on the cross? You might say, what about my situation? Mine's different. So what if God's wisdom was so great that you couldn't understand it? And that you might not see how the cross on Friday produces the resurrection on Sunday. You say, but, but what about whatever? What about the starving children? What about this? What about that? What if God's holiness really was so incredibly beyond what we could imagine? That the world is actually under that curse, but that God was really making these things new and would take care of the innocent ones in eternity in a way beyond what we can imagine? Right? Faith grows at one place, and it's the cross. And then the text ends with this statement. It says, even the angels long to look into these things. New York City pastor, author, uh, Tim Keller, writes this um, about this passage in a foreword to a book on the gospel of Jesus. He says, one of the most startling passages in the Bible, to me, to him, connects the magnificence of angels with the mystery of the gospel. Angels are these incredibly majestic, powerful beings living in God's eternal presence. Yet there is something that has happened on earth which is so stupendous, so amazing, that even these immortal beings experience the persistent longing to look into these things. What are these things that could possibly and consistently consume the attention of God-fixated creatures? The answer is the gospel. The angels never get tired of looking into the gospel. This means that there's no end to gospel exploration. There are depths in the gospel that are always there to be discovered and applied, not only to our ministry and daily Christian life, but above all to the worship of God, uh, of the gospel with renewed vision, and humility. The underlying conviction in my preaching and pastoring and writing is that the gospel, this eternally fascinating message that's craved by the angels, can change a heart, can change a community, and can change the world when it's recovered and applied. So the gospel is this thing, right? We have salvation that the angels of heaven envy because of Jesus and what he's done. 
So there's 12 verses from 1 Peter. Starts this book, this letter, this thing. So what? Right? We've read through 12 verses. What do we do with that? How do we allow the Spirit to apply these truths to our lives? Well, I've got three things. Let's walk out of here today with these in mind. That as we remember the cross, let's place our hope in the only thing that won't disappoint. Right? This inheritance that's waiting for us. Not just is it waiting. They're protecting it. God is protecting it, waiting for you. Let's, let's place our hope in, in Jesus and knowing that he's there. And with that, with this living hope that we have, let's, let's feel fully the pain of today's suffering and trials while still rejoicing in the resurrection of our Savior. And with this posture, right, this is the one, with this posture, let's pass through the world as exiles, as aliens, as strangers, and allow these moments to be the ones that are the visible clues to our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers that our ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ and not anything else. So let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the, this, these words of, of Peter. Um, thank you so much for allowing us to look at them and to consider. Um, God, you are a living hope that we can, we can be sure in, no matter what happens, no matter what we face, no matter what we uh, endeavor to uh, endure, we're not looking for circumstances to change. We're not looking for um, you to relieve us from the pain because we know that the true hope, the true hope is with you uh, in eternity. And God, we look to that. We look to you to, to deliver us, um, maybe not out of these problems, but th through them to trust you, to know you more, to, to, to live with you. God, would you make us these aliens, not weirdos that people look at and don't understand, but ones that they, they say, that's different. I want that. That's not like the way I think. God, would you, would you make us that? Would you help us to stand out because of our unrelenting hope, our living hope in you? We pray this because our Jesus because, because of his name.